This afternoon we are going to conclude our remarks about the importance of the sanctuary in the study of Bible prophecy. You know, I could have uh, spoken about Daniel. Uh, Daniel also has many sanctuary scenes. You know, Daniel 7 has Jesus coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days for the judgment. That's the Day of Atonement. In Daniel chapter 8, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. In Daniel chapter 11, the king of the north tramples on the sanctuary. So the book of Daniel is saturated with the sanctuary as well. But we just don't have enough time to refer to all of the sanctuary scenes in Daniel and Revelation. So let's go to um, the document that is titled, The Sanctuary Sequence in the Book of Revelation. That will be our study. But before we do, we want to have a word of prayer to ask the Lord's blessing for our session this afternoon. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being here once again, and we plead for the Holy Spirit to be present with us. Bless us as we study, give us understanding, open our minds, open our hearts, that we might be able to receive the seed of truth. And we thank you, Father, for the promise of your presence, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, the sanctuary sequence in the book of Revelation. This basically is a review an amplification of the chart that we looked at this morning. Now, uh, as you see at the top of the page, there are five places of the sanctuary ministration. Five places. The first place is in the camp. What did Jesus do in the camp? In the camp, Jesus lived His perfect life. He came and camped in our midst. He tabernacled among us. And the purpose of His life was to live the life that the law requires from us. You see, we can't offer the law perfection. And so because we can't offer the law perfection, uh, the law says you have to die. But of course, we don't want to die. And so how can we offer the law what the law requires? The only way is if the Creator, Jesus Christ, takes the place of His creatures and lives the life in human flesh that we should live. And then Jesus bore our sins upon Himself, and he went to the cross. In other words, he died the death that we should die. So basically, the first uh, step in the sanctuary service is the perfect life of Jesus in the camp with us. That is symbolized by the lamb without blemish. You know, when they brought a lamb with, uh, to the sanctuary, it had to be without blemish, even before it was killed. And so Jesus Christ had to have a life without blemish, or else his sacrifice would not have been accepted. Now the second step, of course, is in the outer court. And in the outer court, you have the altar of sacrifice, and that is where Jesus died. The altar of sacrifice represents the cross of Calvary, and there He bore our sins. Now, there's one piece of furniture that I don't mention here. It's part of the court, which is the laver. And uh, after the priest offered the sacrifice, he would go and he would cleanse himself before he went into the holy place. And basically this represents the fact that Jesus totally cleansed himself from death, came forth from the tomb, death defiles, you couldn't touch even a body of a dead person because you would be become defiled. So Jesus left death behind, he cleansed himself from death at the labor. And then the next function in the sanctuary is in the holy place. And that's where Jesus intercedes for individuals and applies His life and His death to those who come to Him in repentance, confessing their sins. 
then he takes the benefits of his life and death and he places them to their personal account. Then the fourth place in the sanctuary is the, whole, the most holy place. And that is where Jesus goes in to the most holy place to perform a work of judgment, beginning in the year 1844, October 22, 1844. And then the last place, which is very important, is the outer court again. In the outer court, once the sanctuary was cleansed, the sins that had been forgiven by the blood now were brought out and they were placed on the head of the scapegoat. And if you read Leviticus 16 verse 7, it says that the scapegoat was at the entrance to the tabernacle of meeting. And that's the devil's going to be on earth, isn't he? He's going to be in the court on earth. And Jesus is going to come out and he's going to place the ultimate responsibility as the originator and instigator of sin upon Azazel, upon the scapegoat. And then of course Jesus goes back into the most holy place. He changes his garments from his priestly garments because his priestly functions have already come to an end, his high priestly functions. And then Jesus places his kingly garments upon himself and that is where Jesus returns to the earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So those are the five key places of the sanctuary. Those are the functions of Jesus in the sanctuary. Now we all know that the sanctuary service had two parts, two main parts. I'm not talking about geographically, I'm talking in terms of ministration. Uh, the first was the daily service. And the daily service was performed in the camp, in the court, and in the holy place. And then there was the yearly service, and the yearly service was performed in the most holy place, and then at the conclusion of the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would come out and place the responsibility for sin upon the head of the scapegoat there at the entrance, in the court of the sanctuary. Now, the ministration in the court was very, very important. You have there the altar of sacrifice. And according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus loved us and washed us in His blood. Notice that the verbs are past. So Revelation begins with the past work of Jesus in Revelation 1 verse 5. He loved us and He washed us in His blood. Past tense. So Revelation begins by describing the work of Jesus while He was on the earth. By the way, Revelation 1, 17 and 18 also amplifies that because it says that Jesus was the one who was dead and yet is alive. So see you have there the death and resurrection of Christ. So in chapter 1 you have an allusion to the work of Jesus in the court, His death and His resurrection. And then of course we have the ministration of Jesus in the holy place of the sanctuary. And in Revelation, this takes place during the period of the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. Now, in the church series, we find Jesus walking among the seven candlesticks. And in heaven, the candlesticks are literal. But on earth, the candlesticks have a symbolic value. What do the candlesticks represent on earth? On earth, they represent the history of the church. Not only the literal seven churches in Asia Minor, but seven stages in the history of the church universal. Isn't that right? And you notice that Jesus walks in the midst of the, in the, midst of the seven candlesticks. 
He does that literally in the heavenly sanctuary, but spiritually He walks among the, the churches here on earth. In other words, He walks in the church throughout the different stages of church history. Now, what is it that the high priest did with a candlestick in the sanctuary? Well, you have to go, and we're not going to go there because we don't really have a lot of time. I'll just summarize what we have in our document here. The purpose of the high priest with regards to the uh, seven-branch candlestick was to make sure that the wicks were long enough to burn and also that the candlestick had a constant supply of oil. And, of course, the high priest, he would walk, so to speak, among the candlesticks to make sure that the candlestick never ceased giving its light. Now, Jesus walks among the candlesticks in heaven. He keeps them, li them lighted. But what does that represent on earth? On earth, it represents the fact that Jesus walks throughout the course of church history. The seven churches represent all of church history. And Jesus walks in the midst of the history of the church to make sure that the light of the church never goes out. To make sure that there's always a supply of the Holy Spirit to keep the light of the church shining. Even in the dark ages, the light did not totally go out. Because Jesus was walking in the midst of church history, keeping the lamps lighted. The number seven, of course, indicates the totality of church history. Jesus is in the midst of His church on earth during the total period of church history, from the first century till the end of time. So you'll notice here, the key text is Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 4, where we are told that the high priest was to trim the lamps, and he was supposed to do it morning and evening. In other words, the, the lights could never go out. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And the light represents the witness that the church presents to the world through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes sure that the oil never runs out so that His church can be the light of the world. What was the purpose of the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? We've studied this. Was it for personal edification, to make you feel good? Is that why God gave the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? No. Ye shall receive power, and you shall be my what? Witnesses. You are the light of the world, is what Jesus said. And so the purpose of the oil in the lamp is for the church to give light. And Jesus makes sure that there is always a supply of the Holy Spirit to keep the light of the church burning. During the dark ages, the light of the church was on the brink of going out. Why do you suppose they're called the dark ages? But Jesus did not, did not leave himself without witness. Even in the darkest period of the history of the church, the light still shone. Notice this statement from Ellen White. It's found in Acts of the Apostles, page 586. Beautiful statement about the seven candlesticks. She says, Christ is spoken of as walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks. Thus is symbolized His relation to the churches. He is in constant communication with His people. He knows their true state. He observes their order their piety, and their devotion. Although He is high priest and mediator in the sanctuary above, 
yet he is represented as walking up and down in the midst of his churches on earth. Do you see the principle? Jesus is walking in heaven among the literal candlesticks. On earth he walks among the spiritual candlesticks, the church in different periods of history. She continues saying, with untiring wakefulness and unremitting vigilance, he watches to see whether the light of any of his sentinels is burning dim or going out. If the candlesticks were left to mere human care, the flickering flame would languish and die. But he is the watchman in the Lord's house and true warden of the temple courts. He continued, his continued care and sustaining grace are the source of life and light. Isn't that a beautiful description of what the function of Jesus is in the midst of the spiritual candlesticks on earth and also as he walks among the literal candlesticks in the heavenly sanctuary? So Ellen White wrote about seven candlesticks as proof that Jesus is in the holy place. But she also speaks of the candlesticks to prove that Jesus is with his church on earth. Is Ellen White speaking out of both sides of her mouth? No, not any more than Jesus who said that he was going to heaven, to the literal temple, but also promised that he would be with his church, the spiritual temple, until the end of the world. Jesus is literally in heaven, but spiritually on earth through the Holy Spirit. Do you understand the principle? This is a very important principle in the study of Bible prophecy. The literal things are in heaven, and the spiritual things are on earth. In heaven there's a literal tree of life, literal water, there's literal manna, there's literal. The city has literal walls. Do you know what the wall is spiritually these days on earth? The spiritual wall represents the law of God. And a breach has been made in the wall. What is the breach in the wall? The Sabbath commandment has been removed. And so we have to be repairers of the breach. In other words, the wall on earth has to reflect the wall in heaven. And so once again, what is literal in heaven, the literal Ten Commandments, represents the wall on earth, spiritually speaking. Now we move to the next section, which is the seals. We've spoken about Jesus among the candlesticks uh, in Revelation 1 through 3 with regards to the churches. Now we need to move on to the seals. And of course, uh, Jesus, during the period of the seals, is at the table of the showbread. Now what does bread represent? You know this, bread represents the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life, Jesus said. And so, the bread represents the Word of God. Now the bread is called the bread of the presence. It was always on the table. In other words, it was continually there. There was never a time when the table did not have the twelve loaves of bread, representing the fact that God provides for all of Israel's needs. Twelve loaves of bread representing the twelve tribes, the twelve apostles, and everybody that descends from them or comes into the church as a result of their work. Now during the period of papal dominion, the word of God was scarce, but it never, never totally disappeared because Jesus made sure that there was bread on the table. 
The table of showbread represents the throne of God in the holy place for the following reasons. Some people think that the throne of God was always only in the most holy place. Not so. God has a throne in the holy place too. If you don't believe that, you know, just, uh, uh, just read Revelation 3.21 where Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my, on my throne as I overcame and sat with my Father on His throne. And then you go to Daniel chapter 7, and you find in Daniel chapter 7 that the Father moves. And then the chariot that took the Father uh, to where He went, it comes back and it picks up Jesus, the Son of Man. And then the chariot moves Jesus to where the Father was. And of course, where were they moved to? They were moved to the most holy place because that's where the judgment is going to take place. It says the judgment set and the books were open. So let me ask you, do you have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that if they went to the most holy place for the judgment before that, they must have been in the holy? Did God have a throne in the holy place? Absolutely. That's where God the Father and His Son Jesus were until 1844. And then in 1844... The Father moved into the Most Holy first, and then Jesus moved into the Most Holy place afterwards to begin the work of judgment. Daniel 7 makes that absolutely clear. Are you with me? Now, how do we know that the table of the showbread represents the throne of God? Well, I have several reasons here that I'm going to read. Number one, the throne of God is in the sides of the north. Where was the table of showbread in the sanctuary, in the holy place? It was on the north side. The Hebrew expression, lachem panim, is better translated, the bread of the presence. We call it the showbread, but a better translation is the bread of the presence. The word panim means person, face, or presence. So, so in other words, the, the name of the bread itself reflects the fact that in the bread you have reflected the face or the countenance or persons involved. In other words, the bread represents persons. And of course, through the persons, it also represents uh, the Word of God, the written Word of God. Now, the table of showbread was the only item of furniture that was surrounded by two crowns. Interesting. Exodus 37, 10 through 12, you can read that. The altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant had only one crown. Now why would the table of showbread have two crowns? Why would it have two stacks of bread? Because you're dealing with two people. You're dealing with two individuals. There were two stacks of bread on the table. This reflects the fact that when Jesus ascended to His Father, He sat with His Father on His throne. See, there are two on the throne, and both of them provide for the material needs of their people. The next point is that during the third seal, this is a very important point, during the third seal, there is a scarcity or a famine for what? There is a famine for sanctuary bread, which leads to the death under the fourth seal. So why would the seals talk about a scarcity of bread? In other words, uh, grain is extremely expensive during the period of the seals, the third seal, and it brings death in the fourth seal. It's because there's a scarcity of what? There's a scarcity of showbread. It's not totally gone, but it's very expensive. 
During the dark ages was the word of God pretty expensive and hard to find? Oh yes it was. Ellen White furthermore makes it very clear that the Father and the Son were both seated on a throne in the holy place until 1844. The only piece of furniture in the holy place that can be interpreted as the throne is the table of the showbread for the reasons that I mentioned. So during the period of the seals Jesus is where? Jesus is at the table of the showbread. And what is He doing with the bread? He's making sure that there is always a supply of fresh bread for His church. Now were there times during the seals when bread was quite scarce? Oh yes, very scarce, very expensive, and yet it never totally disappeared. Jesus always sustained His church. He, for example, used the Waldenses, who copied little pieces of scripture on, on, on parchment, and then they were, they were um, you know, they, they traveled and they were salespeople, and they would give these little parchments of scripture to their clients. In other words, the Word of God was preserved. There was always bread, even though it was quite expensive and scarce. And then, during the series of the trumpets, Jesus moves to the altar of incense. That's the introductory sanctuary scene. Now, at the altar of incense, Jesus receives the prayers of His saints. We've already studied that. Let me ask you, during the period of papal dominion, Did the papacy take over the function of Jesus at the altar of incense? Who were people taught to pray to? Mary. To pray to the saints. And the ministration of Jesus was cast to the ground. So are you seeing that all of this also relates to the dark ages? During the dark ages, the light flickered, but it did not go totally out. The bread was very expensive, but it not to, did not totally disappear. Jesus interceded at the altar of incense on earth. This was blurred by the papacy, because they said, Oh no, the priest has to intercede for you, Mary has to intercede for you, the saints have to intercede for you, but the intercession of Jesus never totally disappeared. He was still there to intercede for His people. To a great degree, the people lost sight of Jesus as the intercessor. Incidentally, this is the taking away of the daily. The daily means the, the, means the continual function of Jesus in the holy place. And do you know something interesting? The word daily, or tamid in the Hebrew, is used of the table of showbread, it is used for the lamps, and it is used also for, for the altar of incense. In other words, the altar of incense is called the tamid incense. The bread is called the tamid bread. And the candlestick is called the tamid candlestick. So the papacy messed with all three of these. Instead of the word of God, it substituted tradition. Instead of being the light, it brought darkness. And instead of pointing as Jesus as the intercessor, it established human intercessors. That's what it means that it took away the daily. It took away the ministration. The word daily means the continual ministration of Christ. In fact, the Spanish version says, instead of saying daily, it says continuo. The continual ministration of Christ in the sanctuary was taken and placed on the earth instead of pointing people to the ministration of Christ in heaven. 
And then Jesus moves into the most holy place. Following along here in our document, uh, Revelation 11, 19 to 14, 20. And the most holy place opens in eleven nineteen for the beginning of the judgment. The Ark of the Covenant is seen. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant contained what? The law of God. Where did the Day of Atonement transpire? In the most holy place. So you know this is taking place in the most holy place. Now isn't it interesting that when the temple opens in heaven, when the most holy place opens, is there supposed to be an announcement on earth that the temple in heaven has begun the service of the Day of Atonement? Of course. Where is that announcement found where the book of Revelation says that the judgment has begun? The first angel's message. Was that proclaimed by the Millerites leading up to 1844? Yes. Besides Daniel 8.14, the other most famous text that the Millerites quoted was Revelation 14 verse 7. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. So in other words, Revelation 11.19 speaks about the opening of the temple in heaven, of the most holy place, and the first angel proclaims on earth, hey, the judgment has begun in the heavenly sanctuary. So in Revelation 11.19 you have the heavenly event, the opening of the sanctuary, and on earth in Revelation 14.6 and 7 you have the earthly announcement of the heavenly event. And then you move on, Revelation 15 verses 5 through 8. This is what we mentioned in our uh, previous study, and that is that the ministration in the sanctuary ceases. The door to the most holy place opens. Yes, it opens, but it doesn't open to let people in. It opens to let the plague angels out. And no one can enter the temple anymore until the seven last plagues have been poured out because intercession has ceased. When the Day of Atonement was over, was intercession over for Israel? It most certainly was. During this period, God's people will have to live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. The temple is open so that the angels can come out, not so people can go in. The parallel with Noah's day is impressive. Preaching with the power of the Holy Spirit, the closing of the door, the time of trouble and testing, destruction, Satan bound on desolate planet, and the world cleansed from sin and sinners, all of those are parallels from the days of Noah that point forward to the time when probation closes, when the door closes. And then, next in Revelation 16, verse 1 through 18:24, we have plagues. Who pours out the plagues? The angels. See, in Revelation 15, the temple closes. It's filled with smoke. No one can enter. In other words, you don't have an intercessor anymore. And then, beginning in chapter 16 through the end of chapter 18, the plagues are poured out. Because this is the time of tribulation. This is the time of trouble. And as I mentioned this morning, the plagues come from the most holy place. Because the angels come out of the most holy place. They come out of the temple, out of the naos. In other words, they come out of the most holy place of the sanctuary to pour out the plagues. And as in the Old Testament, the plagues came from the Ark of the Covenant because the Philistines were trampling on God's law. They were the uncircumcised Philistines. In the same way, the sinful world will receive the retribution for their sins and it will come from the most holy place directly from the Ark of the Covenant. And then in chapter 19 verses 1 through 10, 
you have God's people victorious in heaven. God's people are there after the plagues, they're singing, they're praising the Lord, the people are clothed in white garments because they have been cleansed on the Day of Atonement. So at Revelation 19 you have the victory celebration after God's people have come forth victorious. And then uh, you have in Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 3, the scapegoat ceremony. Let me ask you, is Revelation following the exact order of the Hebrew sanctuary? I mean, how can you understand Revelation without understanding the sanctuary? It follows the identical sequence of the sanctuary. So in Revelation 20, 1 to 3, you have the scapegoat ceremony. Satan is bound by a mighty angel in a desolate and uninhabited earth for how long? For one thousand years. And what will God's people be doing during those thousand years? God's people will be in heaven. And what will they be doing in heaven? In heaven they will be opening the books to see the records of those who were left behind. Satan, his angels, as well as the wicked. Now are you aware that the judgment has three phases, the judgment has three different stages. There is a pre-advent investigative stage and that is for those who profess the name of Christ. Then you have the millennial stage which is uh, a stage that takes place with God's people in heaven examining the records of those who were left behind, the reason why they were left behind. God wants to reveal to the universe why these people were not brought to heaven. And then, amazingly, after the thousand years, those same books are opened all over again. You find that in Revelation chapter 20. We'll, we'll take a look at that uh, when we study the literary structure of Revelation 12 through 22 later on. But in, in Revelation chapter 20, particularly verses 11 and 12, you find that those books that were looked at during the thousand years will be opened and they will be shown to Satan, his angels, and the wicked after the thousand years. So when God finishes his three stages of judgment, the pre-advent judgment, the millennial judgment, and the post-millennial judgment, the whole universe will be on the same page. You see, the pre-advent judgment, the purpose is to reveal to the heavenly intelligences that Jesus has the right to take a super certain group of people with him to heaven. That's why he deals only with the righteous before the second, com before the second coming. He doesn't have to judge the wicked because they're going to be left behind. But he has to reveal before his second coming who is worthy of being taken there. That's why it's only the righteous before the second coming. Because at the second coming he's going to reward them. But before he rewards them he has to reveal what their reward is. During the millennium who is going to be convinced that God uh, acted correctly in every single case of those who were left behind? Not only the intelligences of the universe, but God's people. Because there are going to be some people there that we, we thought we could take it to the bank that they would be there, and they're not going to be there. And there are other people that are there that we would have never believed would make it. And so God is going to open up the books, and He's going to say, Here folks, let me show you why those people who are, who are here are here. And let me show you why those who are down there, who were left behind, are not here. And uh, when we examine the records, we're going to find that God did everything absolutely just right. Don't think that when we're examining the records, uh, you know, we're going to say, Oh, oh Lord, uh, you missed one. 
you got to bring him up here. No, 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 no. God in the pre-advent judgment reveals who he is going to take with him. When probation closes, his kingdom is made up. Because his kingdom is made up of people. We think of the kingdom in terms of geographical territory. No, the kingdom is his people. And so he has to reveal who his people are before the second coming because he's going to come to take them with him. He's going to take his kingdom with him to heaven. And then during the millennium, you know, he's going to show uh, his people and the inhabitants of the worlds and the angels and everybody in heaven, he's going to show that he was right in leaving all those people behind. Who still remains to be convinced? The wicked. The wicked need to be convinced why they were left behind. And the devil and his angels need to admit that God acted right. So what is God going to do? After the thousand years, he's going to open the books again, the same books that we examined during the millennium. And Ellen White says that in panoramic view, God is going to reenact the entire history of the world. Beginning with Adam in the Garden of Eden, she says, and ending at the very end of time. We're going to see exactly the way it happened. Now that is really something when you really think about it. How, how, you know, how God retrieves the entire history of the world, every single little detail. I mean, that's a type of technology that we, that we don't understand. <laughs> I mean, God has a record of everything. And the wicked are going to see it. And the devil and his angels are going to see it. And God's people are going to see it. It's going to be seen above the city. And every person is going to see a record of their lives. And the opportunities that they received and how they rejected the opportunities of salvation. And the climax of the great controversy is after everybody has seen their case, up till this point, Satan has rallied all of the wicked because he wants the wicked to attack the holy city. And in fact, Ellen White says that uh, uh, powerful weapons of warfare are created. Um, she, says, she also strongly hints that there's going to be military training because when they're ready to attack the city, she says that they march across the surface of the earth with military precision. They're not going to storm the city. They are going to be organized militarily. And she says that the number of the troops is greater than all of the military personnel that have served in every war in the history of planet earth. And that's why Revelation says they will be like the sand of the sea. And they will advance toward the city. They will surround the city. God will show them that they had the opportunity to be saved and they rejected the opportunity and then their rage will shift. See, the same thing that happened in the days of Esther, the same thing that happened to Daniel when there were, he was thrown in the lion's den, the enemies were thrown in. The same thing that happened during the French Revolution. Those who supported the papacy turned against her. The same thing that, that happened with the Jewish nation. The Romans that they, that they asked to, to crucify Christ then turned against them. The same thing will happen as the, as the multitudes turning against their ministers during the sixth plague, the drying up of the waters. But this time it's going to happen with the devil and his angels. You know, usually we have this myth that the city is going to, that the wicked are going to be destroyed when they're attacking the city. The wicked never attack the city. 
the wicked and the devil and his angels, they are totally prepared to attack the city, and then they see that panoramic view above the city, and they realize that they're lost because of the old devil and because of their own choices. And she says that at that point, and this is found in Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 1 through 10, that's the biblical foundation, she says that they now turn towards the devil and they say, You are a liar, and you are to blame. Of course, they're to blame because they made the choices, but they're going to blame the devil. They're going to say, You are to blame. God isn't to blame. God acted right. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that God acted right. The devil himself will have to kneel and admit that God is love and that God is perfectly just. And then the wicked will avalanche themselves against the devil and his angels. And fire will descend from heaven and then will consume the devil, his angels, and the wicked. Does God convince the devil and his angels and the wicked that he acted right? Listen, only when all the universe agrees that God was right is God able to destroy sin and sinners without any loose ends. When sin is eradicated from the universe, there will be no loose ends. The whole universe, loyal and disloyal, will openly and audibly confess that God is love, God is just, and that they're lost because of their own choices. You know, there's no church in the world that has this view except the Adventist church. And do you know why? Because people don't understand the sanctuary. You ask Christians, you say, why did Jesus come to this world? They say, oh, so that he could save me. Yeah, that too. That too. But the primary reason for Jesus coming to this world was not to save us. You say, what do you mean? His primary reason wasn't to save us? No, his primary reason was that in saving us, he would vindicate the character of God before the universe. In other words, there's a greater purpose. The security of the universe is at stake. Not only the salvation of people on this earth, but the security, the eternal security of the universe depends on everybody seeing the issues and everybody seeing that God acted correctly in every single case. I can respect a God like that. And then we have the consummation here. The tabernacle of God will then be with men. And He will dwell with them. Revelation 21 and 22 presents God's people in the New Jerusalem in the earth made new. So Revelation, folks, presents in their proper chronological order, the functions of the ministration of Jesus in the sanctuary. And if we include the, the camp, of course, there's five. But it presents Jesus as the lamb, as the high priest or intercessor, as the judge, and as the king. And of course, it must be remembered, however, that the Desire of Ages, pages 19 to 697, portrays the work of Jesus in the sanctuary camp. On pages 698 to 828, we have his work in the court. And then on pages 829 to 836, you have the ascension of Jesus to the holy place. So that's how you need to look at the book Desire of Ages. It is important to link John 14, 1 to 3. And also, actually, all of chapter 14 through 17 with the book of Revelation. 
In Revelation, and also the book of Hebrews, the emphasis falls upon the heavenly work which Jesus performs in order to prepare a place for His people. In John 14-17, through 17, the emphasis falls upon the work that the Holy Spirit performs in the spiritual earthly temple, while Hebrews and Revelation focus on Christ's heavenly work in the literal heavenly temple. While Jesus prepares the place for us, we should prepare to enter the place. So, in short, do we need to study the sanctuary in order to understand what Revelation is talking about? Yeah. Absolutely. There's no way that you can understand Revelation. And that's the reason why you have this futurism and preterism. They are oblivious to the sanctuary service. And so they're looking, you know, they, they don't conceive of the idea that, well, Jesus now is in a literal heavenly sanctuary, and on earth the sanctuary is His church, the spiritual sanctuary is His church. No, they don't, they don't see that relationship, and so they say, oh, you know, the sanctuary, the temple, that's going to be rebuilt, that's the third temple that's going to be rebuilt in the Middle East. And they totally lose the spiritual significance of the sanctuary for God's people on earth because they don't understand the sanctuary. And as I mentioned in a previous lecture, the sanctuary is not a doctrine of the Adventist church. It is the worldview of the Adventist church. It is that which, which explains and interrelates all of the doctrines of the church. You see, the Sabbath is a doctrine and is portrayed in the sanctuary. Health reform is a doctrine it's portrayed in the sanctuary. The state of the dead is a doctrine. It's portrayed in the sanctuary. The judgment is a doctrine. It's portrayed in the sanctuary. All of our doctrines are portrayed in the sanctuary, but the collection of all of the doctrines make the sanctuary service. The sanctuary service is the worldview of the Adventist church. That's why Ellen White says that the sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. The, the un, proper understanding or the correct understanding of the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. Does the foundation only hold up uh, one little part of a building? No, the foundation holds up the entire building. In other words, the sanctuary holds up the entire structure of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And that's the reason why the devil has hated the, the sanctuary doctrine. And those great theologians that have left the Adventist church, one of the first things that they question is the sanctuary doctrine, particularly the ministration of Christ in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. That is the object of attack constantly by those so-called great scholars that have left the Seventh-day Adventist church. They have gone from the most holy place back to the holy place. And they're kneeling there at the altar in the holy place. And of course Ellen White says that, that there the devil, Satan, has taken the place that was left vacant, not in the heavenly sanctuary because he can't go up there, but in the earthly reflection of the sanctuary. He's there. And the Christian world, they're oblivious to Jesus and being the most holy place. No, they don't understand the Sabbath. They don't understand the law. They don't understand health reform. They don't understand the state of the dead. They don't understand any of these doctrines that are centered in the most holy place because they're all caught up in the court and in the holy place. And that's why they think that they're serving the Lord. And many of them do serve the Lord to the best of their knowledge. And if they're sincere, they will accept the fullness of truth. So, that's all we're going to say about 
the importance of the sanctuary in the study of Bible prophecy. Now I want to invite you to turn in your materials to the one that is titled Daniel's Little Sealed Book. This is going to be an exciting study. Are you, are you, uh, are you excited about this? Yes. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now you're going to really get excited. <laughs> Daniel's Little Sealed Book. Now, in the materials that you received, uh, there is a packet that has this chart on the front. I want you to take that out. And on the uh, fourth page of the packet, you have this little chart. The structure of Daniel 1 through 7. The structure of Daniel 1 through 7. Do you have it? I see that you're searching for it. That's good. Seek and ye shall find. All right. It's on, yeah, it's in that packet, Michelle. It's in that packet, the fourth page. You got one, two, three, four. And you're there. Now this chart, this chart illustrates the structure of the first book in the book of Daniel. Because Daniel is composed of two books in one book. Daniel 1 through 7 is the first book within the book. And I want you to notice how Daniel 1 through 7 is structured. Do you see? Uh, and by the way, there should have been a line drawn right down the middle here, because this is supposed to be a candelabrum. This is supposed to be a candlestick. Okay? Daniel chapter 1 would be the top, the top light. It's the introduction to the book. Okay, so you should have... You should have up here, and it is chapter 1, but it doesn't have a circle. It should have a circle right up here. Now, let me ask you, are Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 on the same branch of the candlestick? Yes, they are. Why? Are they parallel chapters? Of course they are. Daniel 2 has four metals, and Daniel 7 has four beasts. Do they deal with the same theme, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? Absolutely. So they're on the same branch of the candlestick, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Now, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 are on the next branch of the candlestick. Are those two chapters related? Of course they are. What does Daniel 3 describe? It describes the three young men that were thrown into the fiery furnace. What does Daniel 6 describe? Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Do they have a same central theme? Absolutely. Daniel 4 and 5 are on the same branch of the candlestick, and they are related in their theme. In Daniel chapter 4, you have the fall of the king of Babylon for his pride and arrogance. In Daniel 5, you have the fall of the kingdom of Babylon for its pride and arrogance. And so both of those chapters are related. So what you have here 
in Daniel 1 through 7 is you have a book that is complete in itself. And you can use the illustration of the candlestick, Daniel 1 being the, the, being the introduction to the entire book, and then Daniel 2 and 7 related, Daniel 3 and 6 related, and Daniel 4 and 5 related on the same branch. So the first seven chapters of Daniel are a complete book in itself. But Daniel 8 through 12 is another book. Now let's take a look at the first book here in our handout. And uh, we're going to where the title is, the first book. Daniel 7 gives us a sequence of historical powers that rule in the earth. The lion represents Babylon. The bear, the Medes and Persians. The leopard, Greece. The dragon beast, Rome. The ten horns, Rome divided. The little horn, Papal Rome. And then after Papal Rome, 1260 years, time times and the dividing of time, then you have a judgment scene. In other words, after the fall of the papacy, you have the judgment in 1844. And then, at the end of Daniel 7, you have the consequence of the judgment, and that is that Christ takes over the kingdoms of the world. Now where does Jesus receive the kingdom? When He takes it over, or in the judgment, when uh, He already has determined who are the subjects of His kingdom? Folks, his kingdom is made up at the end of the investigative judgment because it's already been revealed who are his. But then Jesus, after the time of trouble, comes and he empirically takes his people to the kingdom, physically takes his people to the kingdom. But the kingdom is made up when the judgment comes to an end. It is revealed who are subjects of his kingdom. That is, the, that is what Jesus went in to do. He went into the Father to get the kingdom. It doesn't mean that he went into the Father to get a geographical territory. Because this geographical territory is his anyway. He went in there to determine who are the subjects of his kingdom, who belongs to his kingdom. And for that, he has to do a work of separation. Because in the church there are wheat and tares. In the church there are wise and foolish virgins. In the church there are good and bad fish. In the church there are people who have true godliness and there are people who have only the form of godliness. In the church there are people who truly have the name of Jesus, whereas there are others who say Lord, Lord, but they don't have a proper relationship with Jesus. And so in the church, the church is a mixed bag, so to speak. In the church you have faithful and unfaithful. Now how is it going to be determined who is faithful and who isn't? There has to be what? A judgment. The purpose of the judgment is simply to test the sincerity of the repentance and the confession of people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, can uh, forgiveness be revoked? Once a person is forgiven, can forgiveness be revoked? Yes, it can. You say, is that biblical, that once a person is forgiven, the, the forgiveness can be revoked? Absolutely. Do you remember the story of the two debtors? Hmm, interesting story. Parable of Jesus. 
there's this debtor that had a huge debt. And this individual, uh, you know, his master, he probably embezzled what belonged to his master. His master calls him. That's the judgment, by the way. And the master says, hey, I want you to render me an account. And he examines the accounts. He says, you're an embezzler. I'm going to throw you in prison and all your family with you. And this man, you know, he says, he says to his master, oh, please, please give me time. Give me time and I'll pay. And, and the master says, be real. He owed 10,000 talents. He wouldn't have been able to pay in several lifetimes. It was too big of a debt. And so, and so the master says, you'll never be able to pay me for this. But he says, I'll do something better. Debt forgiven. Because you cried out to me and you, you pled with me for forgiveness. Oh, this individual is so, so overjoyed. Was he forgiven? Yes or no? Yes. Of course he was forgiven. The story says that, he, that his debt was forgiven. And so this individual, he's jumping for joy. He's really happy. He wasn't really sorry that he embezzled the money. He was sorry he was going to jail. But you would never know that unless there was a judgment. Unless his works were examined. And so this individual goes out to the street. And he finds someone that owes him a hundred denarii. It was a considerable sum. About 100 days of work. Because the common uh, minimum wage was one denarius a day. So, you know, he could have paid this debt in installments. And yet this individual, who had been forgiven this huge debt that he couldn't pay, he goes out and he tells this person, pay me what you owe me. And this person says, same thing. He cries to him for mercy. He says, please, please, give me time and I'll pay you. And the Bible says that he grabbed him by the neck and he started strangling him. And say, you give me my money right now. I want it right now. Was this guy really repentant? Listen, if he had understood the great debt that he had been forgiven, he would have forgiven the little debt. His works showed that his repentance was not genuine. And so word comes to the king, to his master, that this has happened. And so he calls this individual, says, hey, come here. Didn't I forgive you a large debt? Oh yes, thank you. Thank you, Master. What is this I hear that I forgave you such a big debt that you couldn't pay and you were not willing to let that forgiveness flow through you to someone who could pay? And he, and he was silent. And what did the Master do? The Master threw him into prison until he paid all of his debt. Was his forgiveness revoked? Yes, because it was discovered that his repentance and his confession were crocodile tears. It was not genuine. The purpose of the judgment is to determine if your repentance was true or not. And the only way that it can be shown is by the way that you live. By works. We're not saved by works, but we are judged by works. Because the works show if our faith is real. Faith without works is dead. You know, some people say, okay, I'm saved by grace through faith. And my answer is yes, and you're judged by works. Is there a contradiction there? That you're saved by grace through faith, but you're judged by works? Absolutely not. Because your works show if your faith was real or not. If you say, oh, I'm so sorry for sin, Lord. I'm so sorry I beat up my wife. And then you're beating her up an hour from now? 
there's something wrong with your repentance. You see, repentance is shown by a changed life. And the changed life reveals in, tangible, in a tangible way whether your repentance is genuine. That's why when the books are opened, the works are going to be looked at. And then Jesus is going to show who was really his and who was a hypocrite. Jesus many times spoke about the hypocrites who will be thrown where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. So folks, the first half of the book of Daniel, the first seven chapters, are dealing with a central theme. And Daniel 8 through 12, as we're going to see, deals with a, with a separate theme. They're related, but it is a separate theme. Now, we only have a few seconds left, so what we'll do is uh, we'll bring this to a close now, and then in our next session, we are going to take a look at the second book that we find in Daniel chapter, uh, chapters 8 through 12. There are five reasons why Daniel 8 through 12 is a second book in Daniel, and we're going to take a look. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.